Welcome to Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries, an organization that exists to connect the Christian faith with the realities of everyday life. As always and ever, I'm Scott Jones, your host, and we come to you every Friday to discuss, among other things, the contents of our weekly wrap-up post, Another Week Ends, which is sort of like our Christian cosmopolitan grace-infused guide to the contents of the interweb as we see them for the week. In just a few moments, I'll be joined by the usual suspects, David Zoll and Sarah Condon, to discuss the contents of Another Weekend's. But first, I had the privilege this week of sitting down and talking with Jeffrey Pugh, the author of several books, most recently, Homebrewed Christianity's Guide to the End Times, Theology After You've Been Left Behind. Jeffrey, thanks for coming on the podcast today. Thanks for having me. Now, you have written a book about, you've written several books, but your most recent one is in the Homebrewed Christianity series, and it's called The Homebrewed Guide to the End Times, Theology After You've Been Left Behind. Now, there's these kind of breakout little like box, text boxes, a very hip kind of format. And one of the things that struck me most about the books I read it is there's a passage that says, Nickelback is the Gen X <laughs> fanny pack. So, you know, before we get into all things eschatological, can you just tell me a little bit about the Nickelback stuff? Oh, well, okay. First of all, let me tell you about the homebrew posse. So those boxes that show up in the book, I didn't write. Um, Trip Fuller, who is the editor of the series, uh, writes those little boxes um, as he's working through each text. So he's the one that I, I, you would have to ask Trip Fuller, uh, who runs the Homebrewed Christianity podcast, um, which is really how this series originated. Um, I was at American Academy of Religion last year, and uh, Trip Fuller and Tony Jones from Fortress pulled me aside and asked if I wanted to contribute one of the gods. And I said, well, sure. I said, can I do Jesus? And they said, Trip already has that one. So I, I said, oh, okay. Well, uh, what else you got? So they started going down the list. And when they hit the end times, I said, no, that's the one I want. So what I didn't know at the time was that they were going to have the homebrew posse inserted into the text. Um, I didn't know that until I got the final proofs. So I, I really actually can't answer the question about uh, Nickelback being the Gen Ed panty pack. I, I can answer the question about the fact that that I sort of um, was using them to riff on, but I just couldn't use Coldplay because everybody's picking on them. And and uh, so I use Nickelback instead. Are you are you a Nickelback fan at all? No. Yeah. I mean, I was. Gonna, I mean, I was going to say, do you think Nickelback sucks? But I mean, yeah. I mean, that's in the text. That's what I was indicating that um, that at the end of at the end of time, all the music of Babylon would be uh, would disappear, but there'd be no more Nickelback. So the news wasn't all bad. This is true. I can't. Uh, I can't. I can't really disagree with you. I mean, it's. Uh, you know, I could have used I Creed. I, you know, there's so many. You know, but. Why, why, why did you want to do the end times book in the series? I mean, what, I mean, I've, I know I want to do Jesus. He's popular with yeah. the young people. Yeah, he's, he's hip. But why, I mean, why eschatology? I think a lot of people would blush at the topic, would find it intimidating, would worry that it's too laden with kind of the whole kind of left behind, which is in the title, yeah. you know, kind of with yeah. that whole kind of uh, baggage. So yeah. why, why choose this? Well, a couple of reasons. First of all, um, I had personal experience in a end times uh, 
People would say cult. I think that's a pejorative word. But an end times movement back in 19, early 1970s, which is dating myself, um, I joined the children of God. Um, I had a conversionary moment. That's such, that's such an erratic name for, for a group that's religiously kind of spurious or something. Children of God. I mean, how could you be against that? Yeah. Well, that's, you know, I mean, they, they were good at marketing, right? They were good at, at branding themselves. Um, they were actually, uh, okay, I don't know if I'm allowed to cuss on this show. They were batshit crazy. Um, but, you know, <laughs> yeah, you can. when you're a 19-year-old and you don't know anything about Christianity other than some kind of nominal being raised Methodist, and you have this deep, profound conversionary moment, and one of the people there that's sort of willing to sweep up the remains is a group that seems to know their biblical text. They seem to know um, so much about something that you're just becoming acquainted with. So I ended up actually dropping out of college and uh, eventually joining them. And ended up with them. Was there a girl involved at all? Is there, there was, any, I mean, there was, I, no, there was no, no, no. Now that said, after I what left, was their pitch? Okay, there's no girl you drop at a college. Tell yeah. me what their pitch was. I mean, other than I mean, they had to be offering something. Yeah, the well, we're we're radical. Uh, we're the most radical people here, and uh, the end of the world is upon us. And you want to be with the most radical people uh, around. And I was coming out of a pretty radical um, background. Uh, in my sort of as much as a sophomore in college can be, uh, I was uh, in the riots in D.C. in 71, uh, 70. Um, and this was sort of like transferring radicalness over to Jesus. All I knew was Jesus. Anyway, um, so there's no woman involved. There was just, a, as I sort of joke about in the book, I was in a liminal stage of life and they seemed like uh, that was a place that I could sleep and eat and they'd take care of me. And I didn't, you know, sounded like a good idea at the time. But another thing that they were very good at is they had this pitch down uh, about the way that they interpreted apocalyptic text. And if you've never been exposed to apocalyptic text, it sounds very plausible. Everything that they're saying sounds so good. And so I just ended up picking up and going along with them for a while. And eventually, after about four months, was short-lived, I, I looked around one day in Toronto and I said, these people are out of their minds. <laughs> and uh, so long involved story. But anyway, I ended up sort of slipping away in the middle of the night and like a thief in the night. And um, you were like the opposite of Nicodemus in chapter eight. Nicodemus go, it's go, goes to you know, Jesus. Well, maybe you went to G- Maybe you were Nicodemus. Maybe you were thinking Jesus certainly isn't here, so I'm going to go find him like Nicodemus. Yeah, you know, what I actually ended up with was I knew that whatever it was that had happened to me uh, five months earlier was important. Um, But if what had happened to me is what these people believe, then I I had to reject it. Um, So as a way of answering the question, it was a personal sort of journey for me. And over the next couple of years, I was unpacking out why would somebody do something like join that kind of group? Why did I join that kind of group? What's the attraction? Um, you know, somebody put a copy of Hal Lindsey's Late Great Planet Earth into my hands about a week after I had had this conversionary moment. And I didn't know any better. I read that thing and thought, well, damn, this is, this sounds like this person knows what they're talking about. This is like, it's like in Back to the Future when they get the almanac. 
and they yeah. go back in time. All the sports betting, but you were getting the almanac. It's like it's like that. You could yeah. you could predict the future. Yeah, here. you have the future, and that's that's heady stuff for a nineteen year old. You know, oh Matt, hell, my parents don't even know the future, but I do. Um, now you know that's that. There's a lot of power involved in that, right? So the people that sort of get captured by the apocalyptic imagination. Uh, there's a certain sense in which that's a way of maintaining some kind of personal power in their lives because they know. So no matter what happens, they they know what they the future holds, what what's going on. The people that are captured by the left behind books, um, they sort of have this vague sense that they know how the world will unfold. And if you feel powerless in a society, then that is one way of gaining power. You know, the apocalyptic imagination is in some sense a political imagination because you are sort of um, understanding, depending on even whatever trajectory you are viewing this from, you have a knowledge that nobody else has. So that that was, you know, it was a personal uh, journey piece. And then over the years, uh, some of my work has been in new religious movements in America. So a lot of those are millenarian, eschatologically based. Um, so that that sort of part has fascinated me. Um, and then in my teaching, uh, when I teach about religion and politics, the millennial sort of movement in American culture and American society has been fascinating as well. Okay. So it's fair to say, right? I, you're an expert. I can ask you. It's fair to say for most of the history of the church, right? It's, it, it's the church has been what they call, I guess, a millennial, right? The, 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 this, the millenarian stuff is kind of symbolic. We're in a new age after the resurrection of Jesus. And somehow it's also kind of pan-millennial. Somehow it's going to all pan out in the end. Yeah, you know, I mean, that's very interesting, right? Because if you're thinking about, say, for instance, the status quo church, think about sort of a, a river, and you had that status quo church, and that status quo church is moving, and you could see that as being amillennial um, in a certain way, maybe amillennial in a way they follow Augustine. But there's always been this eruptive um, countercultural uh, movement throughout time where these apocalyptic movements would just sort of pop up and explode into the status quo. So Montanus, you know, is an apocalyptic movement. Um, Joachim of Fiora is an apocalyptic movement. Um, the Peasants' Revolt in 1525, where the peasants are motivated not just by apocalyptic literature, but also by astrology, because it was a year of the fish. So the apocalyptic imagination has always been a kind of um, eruptive force in Christendom. Um, now, I feel like it's compelling because they, they make better charts and they make scary movies. I mean, I feel like if you can have cool charts and scary movies, that you're well on your way to being a dynamic religious movement. Well, I, yeah, I know, especially in the contemporary culture, that is absolutely the case. Would that I could write a book that could sell a tenth of what Left Behind books uh, sold. Um, I, I, you know, I, I'd be able to actually own a home. Um, I, I love Nicolas Cage. It's a guilty pleasure. I don't even know if it's a guilty pleasure because I don't even feel guilty. But I tried to watch that Left Behind movie. First off, you can't put that much of a film in a plane unless it's airplane. I'm just like, get out of the damn plane. I mean, <laughs> it's like the only Nicolas Cage film I haven't liked. They can ruin Nicolas Cage. Well, you know, as as I said in the book, I. You know that that left behind is a is a movie about millions of people disappearing along with Nick Cage's uh, career. Um, so you know the the Nick Cage of Valley Girl is no more. I mourn his loss, and it and it's sad. Um, 
uh, that said, um, it's and you have to think about this in some ways because I think you're on to something. The apocalyptic is always more fascinating to us than the mundaneness of everyday life. There's something about the end that fascinates us. It shows up in in every culture. I mean, Hindu culture, Buddhist culture, the you know, and in Christian culture. There's something about this that has kind of seeped into our imaginations. Yeah, and there's even a secular renaissance of it, right? That's in like right. post-apocalyptic movies and That's right. serial dramas. I mean, we, right. so we seem obsessed with it. On That's some right. Level. Book of Eli, you know, I don't know if you saw that one with Denzel Washington. I mean, you know, the apocalyptic imagination works itself out. And especially it seems now, um, the apocalyptic imagination is just running amok in Hollywood. But the fact of the matter is, is that it's it's not something unique to our age. It's been there, especially in Christianity, all along. It just erupts from time to time. Um, I've just finished a, a piece of fiction that I'm trying to find literary representation for on uh, the Munster uh, Rebellion in 1534-1535, where the radical Anabaptists take over the city of Munster. And... Um, they throw out all the Catholics and Protestants, and uh, they await the return of Jesus. They, they establish the kingdom of Zion to await the return of Jesus. And the city has held siege for 16, 16 months. While they're in the city, they reestablish polygamy, uh, utter communism. I mean, just all the apocalyptic tropes show up in time, in history, in this one particular moment. Christians going wild, 16th century. Christians going wild, absolutely crazy, wondrous story. And uh, but but not just that, but but David Koresh, the children of God, was a profoundly apocalyptic group. They thought the end of the world was upon them. Um, We were all told to leave the United States in 1972. Um, You know, we elected Nixon, so I guess there's something to be said for their you know uh, call. Um, But they dispersed all over the world, and then they mutated into other groups. They're still going on. They're known as the family now, although they may have mutated into something else. But um, and their founder died. Uh, but and there was some recent documentary uh, made about them that showed up on Netflix. It was absolutely fascinating. You could have been in that if you stuck around. Uh, yeah, but that would have been a life less <laughs> not worth living, actually. <laughs> Is it? Is it? I remember I was teaching, and I think it was a philosophy class or something, to in, uh, to undergrads, and I asked them once. You know, this is just this was recently, a couple of years ago. I said, if I showed you a picture of a bald eagle and a and a grizzly bear boxing, what would you think it represents? And none of them knew. Wow. It, is it fair to say that, like, is that experience something like, it seems like that's what you're saying we do in the book of Revelation. Like, we're looking at all these cartoons, these images, and we don't kind of get the meaning, so we kind of make it, well, this, I mean, yeah. this is what it means for us. Yeah. Oh, okay, so like much of religion, if we're not careful, we end up projecting ourselves into the object of our, of our thought. So, By the way, for our millennial listeners, we should say... The bear represents the former Soviet Union. Yes, it does. Represents, but, <laughs> but it's amazing how just a, a couple years, you know, after, a couple years after the fall of the Soviet Union, those symbols are dead. Yes, it's yeah. amazing. Yeah, but we'll find new symbols because that's what we do. We we take these texts and then we we project new symbols into the text so we can re-narrate um, what the truth is going to look like a right now and then be uh, into the future. But you're right; the the former symbols are lost. So we'll make up new ones 
and then we'll we'll impose them on the text, and then we'll read the text as if it's saying these are the symbols. The entire 30 million people captured by left behind theology are essentially doing this. And if any of your listeners are part of that community and you want to call me out, um, I would love to have a conversation with you about that. Um, I tried to read one of those novels. I couldn't, I tried to get through the first one years ago and it occurred to me, like, I, was like, I, I don't believe this theology, but, but what if I did? I think I'd want to be left behind. Like, yeah. who wants to get up to raptured when you can stay with the tribulation force and, and work against the Antichrist? It's like, it shouldn't, I if I read this, shouldn't, should I want to be left behind? Because I did. I wanted to be left it's behind. It's so exciting. You know, you're jetting around the world and you're, you're involved in life and death struggles and life has meaning. And, uh, you know, I mean, you know, once again, yeah, once again, uh, you know, the, but the fact of the matter is, is that this what they call the rapture and how they interpret the biblical text is a theological innovation that emerges in the 19th century it's not really present in church theology so you have over 30 million people in this country alone and i'm going to go ahead and say i don't mean to be offensive with this comment living out of a sense of false consciousness and and they'll just continue i mean it's like um it's like uh, Sean Hannity trying to polish what happened in the debate between the first debate between Trump and Clinton and saying that it was the exact opposite. They'll take the text and make it say something it never meant to say. And the worst part about that is that they lose, uh, in some sense, the real, true, revolutionary, radical nature of that text. So you're, you're a, a rel- I, I feel like I can call you an end times expert since you've written, you've studied, you've written on this. Can I just ask you a few questions? Well, uh, I might not be an expert, but go ahead. Like, like these are practical questions. <laughs> I have, I have the chip card. I have the, I have yeah. the, you know, the credit card. And it takes like forever. It's like technology invented in the seventies. It takes. Yeah. Like, if they offer me a barcode on my hand, right, yeah, I want to get it because I want to move in and out of the cashier line. The six 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 stuff. I don't have to worry about that, right? Um. Well, you know, the barcode on your hand. That's that's a funny. That's a funny one. Um. I, I'm not going to give you personal advice here, Scott, but what I am going to say is that there are millions of people in the world that are actually anticipating the barcode being part of their hand or their forehead in the new cashless society. I want it. I want it now. It's not coming fast enough. <laughs> you, you know, people can't steal it unless they, of course, cut off your hand and then they can use that barcode, you know, wherever. This is true. Finer Systems things have their limitations. Sold, you know, I mean. <laughs> Nobody's thought about that yet. Okay, now I want this is another just practical question. Then we'll make it into some more really gourmet theology. But I, I heard a pastor once say uh, at a pretty large, very large church, uh, it, mega church, he's preaching and he parenthetically, he was talking about preaching from Luke, I think, and it was an apocalyptic text. And, and he said, now let me just say something. Any of you people here are post-trib people. That which means you know you're not yeah. raptured yeah, out yeah, yeah, yeah. until yeah. after the great tribulation. Yep. You, you think God beats his bride? And ladies, if you're here and you're engaged to a post-trib believer, if he thinks that God knocks his bride around, what's going to keep him from putting a hand on you? That's bad theology, right? That's not. That's that's not. That's not. That's not within. That's not within bounds, right? <laughs> that that's nutty. That's absolutely <laughs> nutty. I don't know if you've seen the Reverend Billy Ray Jim Bob uh, yet, but I'll, I'll send I have you. Not. I have I'll not. send you a Please. link. I'll send you a link. That pastor went on to say in the sermon, he went on to say, "And anybody that's skeptical, we're closer 
to the return of Christ in any generation history. And the crowd erupted, and I thought, you just made an analytic statement. Like, all, ma- all bachelors are males, but not all males are yeah. bachelors. Yeah. I was like, man, I'd like to preach to this crowd. I mean, yeah. this, is a, this is a crowd that is easy to get going. Yeah, but look, <laughs> but look, yeah, but look what happens. I mean, he pushes that button, and he's probably sincere in his statement about that. But once again, I, you know, I want to just go ahead and say that this is a missionary project on my part. This is missionary outreach because those folks are living in a sense of false consciousness. I'm, I'm absolutely convinced that I have friends of mine who have died believing that Jesus was going to return in their lifetime. And they oriented their entire life around that idea. And they're going to be kept from getting the barcode, which is going to move yeah. them along the line. I right. mean, that's just well, not even... Yeah, they they have no they have no chance at the barcode. But if it shows up at Disney World, everybody will be happy. Exactly. I I a couple of years ago I read a book by Paul Zoll, actually the founders of Mockingbird David Zoll's father, called the Jesus the First Christian. Uh, it's about historical Jesus stuff. He made an insight there that John the Baptist, like lots of Second Temple Jews, was preaching an es- an eschatology that was apocalyptic and said, "Not yet, but soon." Yes. So we got to get ready. And so Jesus changes that to already, not yet, which he argues makes space for this Pauline understanding of grace, this, you know, there's the gospel accepts me right here for who I am. The new reality started here. And yet there's more to come. And he says the whole, he even sees like, if you, unless you have some, something like this understanding of the kingdom, you can't get to that sort of at the same time sinner and saint that seems like we need to have to make sense of, you know, how we're all works in progress. Do you think that both a kind of super apocalyptic, it seems like some forms of Christianity want to go back to the not yet, but soon instead of the already, not yet. Yeah. And some forms of, of liberal Protestantism want to get rid of eschatology altogether. Is yeah. that sort of like twin forms of legalism? Like you either are legalism, legalist on the apocalyptic side, you got to work yourself up and get ready and do all these things, or you lose eschatology and hope and grace-based hope, all, hope altogether, and it becomes some sort of anthropological uh, humanistic project that is that throws you back on yourself. Yeah, you know, so that's a tricky one, right? And I'm 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 going to go ahead and, and try to work this out. Uh there is a certain sense in which when the early church thinks about the already and the not yet, um they have an idea about the not yet that in in the earliest church was profoundly apocalyptic. Um they saw it as apocalyptic. And then as the centuries roll by, it becomes less and less apocalyptic. And I'm going to say more and more eschatological. The eschatological is a category of the imagination. Um, and if you think about it as being a category of the imagination, and this might uh, unfortunately uh, filter into your sort of um, tepid uh, anthropology. The question is, toward what are we moving? What are we moving to? So, so the telos becomes a part of this. Now, if you think we're moving to a sort of a massive conflagration of world events and, you know, it's going to be this horrible sort of, you know, apocalyptic moment with utter destruction, Armageddon, um, then you're moving in one certain direction. But if you think like the Orthodox, that the divinization of the world is the not yet, and that, that we have the already in Jesus as the model for what the not yet looks like, then we're not just moving sort of aimlessly to in every day and every way we're getting better and better. We're moving to a kind of nitty gritty, realistic 
understanding of what it means to be vehicles of grace in the world in which we live. Um, and that's the eschatological imagination. The world has its own eschatological imagination. So we're seeing it right now in technology. We're seeing it in the things that we create. But, but the fact of the matter is, is that they don't have a, a kind of firm goal, I think, in mind. So that as we create things that end up creating us, we're just being taken to places we have no idea. So the Christian eschatological imagination takes us into different spaces. I don't think that has to be a tepid liberalism. I think it can be something, uh, you know, strong and robust. Um, but, you know, that's how I would see that. You've also, you've also written about Bonhoeffer. And I'm going to have you back on the podcast to talk about because I'm deeply interested in Bonhoeffer. And I, I like what it seems like you do with him. But there's this term that, that so much ink has been spilled on. It, uh, and it's titled uh, your most recent book on Bonhoeffer, right? Religionless Christianity. Uh, uh, it is. I take that to mean something like uh, I don't. Th- I don't. I don't think Bonhoeffer means that. We, okay, people aren't going to be parts of church communities or anything like that. But it almost seems like he's trying to sort of demythologize a little bit, like it. It, it sort of get away from this uh, human religious project, like you see in the Tower of Babel. Let's make a name for ourselves mm-hmm. and, and have a more modest understanding. I, I wonder how does eschatological hope? How does the not yet keep us? Is there a relationship between that and a kind of appropriate religionlessness, a kind of appropriate humility in the life of the church? Yeah, you know, that's a that's a really interesting one. But, you know, unfortunately, my professor mind starts to go off into um, how complex a, a category itself religion is. Just but give it, me the tweet. But if we... Uh, <laughs> But uh, projection. Uh, but if we if we're looking at what Bonhoeffer's facing, and for him, let's just go ahead and, and and think about the fact that it probably did look pretty apocalyptic. He was watching the destruction of Christendom, watching the destruction of his country, and what he had seen was a Christian church that had been absolutely worse than worse than powerless. It had been complicit in the Nazis. It had been complicit in their rise. It had been complicit in their uh, in the entirety of the Nazi regime. And um, if if people want to question me, or if Metaxas is listening to this and he says I'm reading Bonhoeffer wrong, I'm happy to have that conversation somewhere. So I'll referee that. I will gladly referee that. um, So when when Bonhoeffer is standing at the moment of the ashes of of Christianity in in his context, it can seem like an apocalyptic moment. And he's wondering what survives this, what survives the fall. Um, what, you know, and he says, is Christianity just another form of religion? Um, historically contingent, it passes away. He's willing to uh, own up to the fact that and that may well be the case. But he says there's something there in Christianity, and it's Christological because Jesus is for him, the Christological center of all reality, of concrete reality. And he says, that's the thing we'll have to follow out of the ashes, out of the abyss. And we may not follow it out with the structures that we have now. Um, He said the church may die. uh, And certainly the Lutheran church, uh, you know, looked to him, you know, very dead. Um, But he said, we'll recover arcane disciplines. We'll recover the disciplines of Eucharist. We'll recover the disciplines of prayer. We'll recover certain spiritual disciplines that will form and shape us in such a way that we will be different agents of grace in the world than the, 
what religion or Christianity to that point had shaped, because to that point, it had shaped nothing that was able to uh, withstand the onslaught of Hitler. Absolutely nothing. That's an eschatological imagination. The, the, the ability to think about what a new humanity could look like. I think that's what Bonhoeffer was thinking about when he writes in the last part of Letters and Papers from Prison. He's, he's sketching out his outline for a book. Um, one of the things that he's trying to outline is what does Christianity look like without the church? And who are we um, without those structures, without centuries of um, cultural conditioning? What do we look like? Jeffrey, thanks for coming on the podcast. And I'm going to have you back to talk more Bonhoeffer. And yeah. I appreciate you giving me permission to get the bar co- to get the barcode. <laughs> I didn't give you permission to do anything. You're a grown ass man. You can do what you want to. <laughs> Thanks so much for coming on with us. Trumpets, hear the pipers. One hundred million angels singing. Multitudes are marching to the big kettle drum. Voices calling, voices crying. Some are born and some are dying It's Alpha and Omega's kingdom come And the whirlwind is in the thorn Good morning, Mockingbird! Here once again with David Zoll, the animating force of all that is Mockingbird, from whom all mocking blessings flow in Charlottesville, <laughs> Virginia. David, how are you doing? Good night. I'm uh I'm fine. I'm better. Uh, I'm I'm a little worse off for having heard that intro. <laughs> and that joyous laughter, the inimitable laughter, belongs to the inimitable woman, Sarah Condon in Houston, wow. Texas. What's going on, Sarah? Uh, nothing. Got the kids to school, uh, and I'm here, which always feels like a huge accomplishment. You look like you've been up a little while and been. Just oh, bopping around and I doing mean, things. Yeah, they've they've got to be fed. They've got to be dressed. They have to have their teeth brushed, their hair fixed. It's a whole thing by by once, this point once, on Friday. Once again, staving off the child protective services. <laughs> 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 Get one more day. And if you want to see the beautiful baseball cap Sarah's wearing, we just posted a Facebook live video. You can see it because it's uh, the glasses hat combo. It's just absolutely exquisite. <laughs> Thanks. All right, David, what do we got here? This week, Another week is ending, and it's time to talk about the contents of another weekend. So what do we got? Hit us with it, David. Okay. First up, we have uh, from Science of Us, we have the report that kids, uh, speaking of kids, uh, are tiny judgmental snobs when it comes to morality. And it's this uh, little report about a new study uh, published in Psychological Science that um, younger children aren't interested in your choices so much as your thought process when it comes to morality. Kids demand moral purity and anything less makes you just a little bit evil. They they just talk about a study where uh, kids were given the choice between someone who is a little conflicted and then did the right thing and someone who wasn't at all conflicted and did the right thing and sort of, you know, confessing to their mother about a breaking a lamp or something like that. And the children overwhelmingly chose the unconflicted character. Whereas when they did the same study with adults, they found that adults said uh, sort of were, were preferred the conflicted person who kind of struggled and then came to the right decision. And um, yeah, it's kind of, it's, uh, I think it's a pretty interesting study they say that, 
the, the way that the New York magazine interprets it is that the children are sort of have a flawed, simplistic view of morality. Yet I was struck by the fact that it seems to be more kind of Sermon on the Mount kind of understanding of morality. The true morality is uh, not just a uh, an action, but a motivation issue. And so um, that as we get older, we tend to compromise on that and our morality kind of, um, they, they would say it becomes more complicated or more sophisticated, but in fact, it also becomes full of all sorts of rationalizations. Um, it reminded me of one of my favorite um, Onion articles of all time. The, from 2009, new study reveals most children unrepentant sociopaths. Which is <laughs> uh, a study that concluded that an estimated 98% of children under the age of 10 are remorseless sociopaths with little regard for anything other than their own egocentric interests and pleasures. <laughs> sort of the inverse, actually, of the New York Magazine report. But I, uh, I don't know. Does this jive with y'all's experience of children or your own inner child? Yeah, I mean, so um, there's this piece that I've never written for Mockingbird because I don't want to get kicked off the planet um, about how much I hate Thomas the Tank Engine um, because it's so moralistic and it's so like the like the engines get told what to do by Sir Topham Hat and they just do it and like everybody, you know, it's very British. Everybody knows their station. It's also written by an Anglican priest, so I'm supposed to love it, right? But it drives me nuts. <laughs> But the show that I love that my kids love um, is also a really old show is um, Curious George mm. because he, and he actually, it was interesting. I kept thinking of this moment when I was reading uh, how George actually will have these moments where he's like, you know, I shouldn't paint the, this jungle scene in this lady's room just because I found like random paint laying around. But then he's like, she'll probably like it. And then does it, you know what I mean? And then like he gets forgiven so easily. Um, I mean, everyone sort of talks him through why it was a bad idea and then he immediately gets forgiven. And I always think kids must like cling to that. I mean, my kids love Curious George. Like, and they're, you know, they're three years apart and my son will watch it just as much as my daughter. Mm-hmm. Um, because there's this element, I mean, he, I don't know, I, it, I I kind of struggled with this piece. I'm sure they're right. I mean, they've done the study, but my children really love watching this character who kind of does have these like conversations with himself. Should I do this? Should I not? And then he always, inevitably, George always does whatever it is he's thinking about doing. And it's always the wrong thing to do. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and they love watching that. So, right. Yeah. And doubtless another study is going to come out in a few years and sort of saying the exact opposite. I mean, does, uh, does, does Scott ever remind you of Chef Biscetti a little bit, maybe? <laughs> I just made her spit out her water, everyone. Scott, yeah, I don't think you're, I don't think you know who Chef Biscetti is, do you? I don't. I, th- I know Chef Boyardee. Well, he's beloved. <laughs> they're pretty similar, Chef Boyardee they and are. Chef Biscetti. I like that. I like that. <laughs> yeah, this is, it's interesting that you say it. Like, I think of like Immanuel Kant. And, you know, basically, I mean, Kant thought that if you wanted to do something, it, it wasn't moral. Like, let's say, you know, mm. your country was attacked and you, you wanted to get revenge. So you sign up for the military. Well, if you want to do it, is it really moral unless it's made from this pure motivational choice? So, I mean, there's maybe one could argue there's connection between Kant and Jesus, at least on that point. Uh, I, I also was thinking there's this great line in Augustine's Confessions where he's talking about ste- wanting to steal the pears as a kid. As an adult. He's, a, he's a little older than the kids in the study. The funny thing is they, they, they steal these pears that apparently aren't tasty. He said, you know, uh, my desire was to enjoy not what I sought by stealing, but merely the excitement of thieving and the doing of what was wrong. There was a pear tree near our vineyard laden with fruit, though, though attractive in neither color nor taste. 
to shake the fruit off the tree and carry off the pears, I and a gang of naughty adolescents set off late at night. We carried off a huge load of pears, but they were not for our feast, but merely to throw to the pigs. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you just steal stuff for the excitement of breaking the rules. You know, the, the, the people who haven't seen the movie Hell or High Water, which recently came out, uh, we, we ran something about it on Mockingbird, and I hadn't seen it until last night, actually. And it touches on exactly what you just mentioned. There's, there's two brothers, and one of them enjoys the act of stealing and criminal activity, and one is doing it for sort of complicated moral reasons, and it's a beautiful film. So, Sarah... And wrapping up, I know you sometimes steal library books. You do yes. it for the thrill. Yes. Just for the thrill. Okay. Just for the thrill. Yeah. Still got it. Still got that Luther book. Still got it. Oh, yeah. I forgot about that. Shot a man, shot a man in Reno just to watch him die. <laughs> <laughs> Why so serious? We've gone to more serious. I don't know if it's actually more serious. We've got this study from Politico, that, right, David, that says that seven percent of people have lost a friend in this election. Yeah, I mean the the big uh, news story clearly this week was the first presidential debate and everything that happened there. And um, while we are clearly not uh, partisan in our podcasting or blogging, uh, it is certainly interesting to see what is going on between people in this election. And I think, uh, yeah, I think most of uh, some enormous amount, seven out of 10 registered voters said the presidential election has brought out the worst in people. Um, and just 4% said it's brought out the best in people. I'd sort of like to meet those people. It's, yeah, I'm surprised it's that high. Yeah, I mean, 4%? Who who are you guys? Or no, that's no, 7 out of 10 say it's the worst. And, and 3 out of 10, is it? Or 4? Yeah. Not 4, 4% or, or 3 out of 10? Uh, I think it's 4%. I think, it's, I think okay. the other ones just didn't, probably didn't respond. But then you have... Um, this this thing saying an overwhelming 93% said this election hasn't cost them any friendships, but 7% said it has. And that's actually a lot. Um, that is a lot. And we do talk, you know, everyone I, I've, I've interacted with this election seems to have mentioned that uh, the, you know, blocking people, muting people on social media has been a survival mechanism. But, you know, in the midst of what, you know, Scott, what this made me think of was that incredible picture that surfaced last week of Michelle Obama and George W. Bush um, embracing it, the, I think it's at the National Museum of African American uh, History and Culture. And there, I, 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 apparently there's, there's a real history of physical affection or warmth between these two. And it just doesn't seem at all like a photo op that people just got it on. And, um, it's been circulated and, and I thought I wanted to read the first little bit of what Mark Lander said in the times about why it seems to have struck such a chord. And he says, maybe it was the unexpected warmth of the gesture. 
the sheer enveloping display of affection. Maybe it was his response, the beatific expression on his face, on Bush's face, eyes almost closed, head tilted toward her shoulder. Maybe it was the moment, tenderness at a time when presidential politics has become a festival of cruelty. And, you know, we were doing a, um, a, a class at our church this week on stories of grace. And I opened with this and I knew it was a sort of dangerous opening gambit because people feel so strongly about Barack Obama and so strongly about George Bush. And yet, what I what I heard in those opening sentences were two beautiful, fresh euphemisms for grace. I mean, we've we recently adopted this one non complimentary behavior, which is a great one. But here you have unexpected warmth. I think that that is a um, you know grace always comes as a surprise. Unexpected warmth and that that implies that they're two sort of parties that should be estranged, and that's one of the things people are responding to this picture. And the otherness is tenderness in a time of cruelty. Tenderness in a time of cruelty. So that to me is a moment of a beauty in the midst of the maelstrom of uh, difficulty and uh, bad feeling. I, I have a family on, e- on either side who are, I mean, who's for either candidate. You know, I have a lot of family in rural Mississippi, so we can all just take a guess at who they're all passionately going to vote for. Jill, Jill Stein. Yeah, exactly. And I love them so much. And I love my family who is like really, really has been for Hillary Clinton from the beginning. So this hurt. I mean, this hurt like to read. I know 7% is not 14%, but it seems so high to me and so tragic that people would lose people in their lives over this election. It's just, it's just profoundly sad. And I, I believe, you know, when we see this, especially in church life, but even, even in the context of, of family and friends, I mean, all I can think about is the body of Christ and how every member is necessary and how if we allow, you know, politics, and we'll get to the C.S. Lewis piece, but that was so interesting in light of politics. If we allow politics to divide us, like, I mean, the devil, that's the devil at work. So, um, yeah. I like the way you say devil. Well, it just I don't know, it has a ring to it. Like, it's not everybody can pull off saying devil in the modern world and have it be compelling, but you it's, do. It's the Mississippi upbringing, I'm sure. I like that. Well, let me tell you, one group, I, I tell you, you know, whoever, whatever you think about either candidate, the 3 a.m. phone call thing, at, at least Donald Trump can tell you he's up at 3 a.m. Sending, tw- <laughs> sending tweets. So if the call comes in, he doesn't have to rub sleep out of his eyes. He's up. And he's up. Uh, <laughs> apparently this morning told, told people to check out uh, <laughs> the former Miss Universe's sex tape. So there you go. Uh, you know, but what's interesting though oh, is you know, poor he, woman. You know when he was ra- ragging on her. Way, I, this might be the bridge too far because, like, if you're ragging on Miss Universe for being like, you, you got to be a ten to vote for. I mean, <laughs> it's only tens. Like, only tens get in. Only tens. I'm like, I'm like, gosh. I mean, you're really like narrowing your demographic down to really good-looking and fit people. I mean. I'm close, but <laughs> I was like waiting. Yeah, where's this going? I'm close. I'm gonna get the. I, I feel like I'm, I, I feel like I was a Pittsburgh ten, but uh, yeah, <laughs> Scott Pittsburgh you know ten awesome? Jones. Yeah, exactly. I'm a San Diego three, but uh, <laughs> well, the- yeah, because I like the C.S. Lewis piece. Several people sent you this, right, David, from New York Times. Yeah, um, it's called uh, the politics, political magic. Excuse me, the political magic of C.S. Lewis, written by Peter uh, Weiner, and um, really unearthing some stuff about Lewis that I actually didn't know. Um, sort of his. Um, his political stance and how, how actually aggressively he had tried to separate himself from uh, partisan politics in his own time. In fact, he had turned down um, 
that uh, nomination from uh, Churchill to be uh, what is it? What what exactly was it? It wasn't it wasn't a, it wasn't getting a knighthood, but it was getting some kind of uh, honor that he thought would make him look more conservative. Over and over again, he he, he sounds like of kind of. Uh, a blue state Christian, in fact. He says, a great many people seems to think that if you are a Christian yourself, you should try to make divorce difficult for everyone. He wrote in Mere Christianity, I do not think that. At least I know I should be very angry if the Mohammedans, I mean the Muslims, tried to prevent the rest of us from drinking wine. My own view is that, that, Amen to that. that the churches should <laughs> frankly recognize that the majority of British people are not Christians and therefore cannot be expected to live Christian lives. And that kind of sums up how he felt about a great deal of, he was much more interested in the, old, in the, the ends rather than the means. And so um, Wayner thinks that we could all deal with a little, I mean, he knows that he's, he, when he uses Lewis, he's talking about someone who's been so canonized uh, in evangelical circles today. And so it's, he's, he's wisely taking him as a, as a, highlighting the kind of more bridge building tendencies though you know i i think that in the in the in the in the article itself there is a uh there's this refrain that you hear all the time uh politics can distort and invert christianity turning a faith that at its core is about grace reconciliation redemption into one that is characterized by bitterness recriminations and lack of charity and amen to that that's totally true but this is there's a good deal of hating and dehumanization going on in the name of christ and kind of haranguing sort of modern christians as though this is a fresh problem i mean has that ever has there ever been a time when like christians have looked around by gosh we're doing a really good job of representing christ to the culture uh into the world i don't i don't think it's ever been the case I, I mean not since we became actual human beings yeah no. so no. i get a little sick of that you know it, it, let's, yeah. let's think of this dream golden era when um christians are going to give christ a good name it's just never going to happen you know christians are the right. ones who killed christ you know we're just as much as anyone so yeah i just thought this was like one incredible quote after another i mean the, the author said uh because of the fallen nature of humanity lewis was concerned by the concentration of political power i mean it's it's such a great statement on on like why politics is so dangerous in light of a low anthropology but i, I think my favorite thing from this piece is um uh, the danger of mistaking our merely natural, though perhaps legitimate enthusiasms for holy zeal is always great, Lewis wrote, as long as we're talking about the devil this morning. The demon inherent in every party is at all times ready enough to disguise himself as the Holy Ghost. Mm. The formation of a Christian party means handing over to him the most efficient makeup we can find. You know, I mean, we've seen poor Jesus dragged into either political campaign this season. And... um I don't know. I just, uh, gosh, that just this idea that the disguise of the Holy Spirit in the midst of the mayhem that is American politics right now is, is pretty remarkable. Yeah, I think it's interesting if you the, how demonization, idolization go hand in hand. Like if you idolize, you have to demonize, right? Mm. So mm. if it's not that, hey, I think free market stuff solves things better than this, but if you idolize the market. You have to demonize governmental assistance. And likewise, if you demonize big business and this stuff, you're not just like, hey, I think government has a role to regulate, but you're like business and, and interests are the devil. I mean, then you, if, you idol, if you idolize the government's ability to like really make life grand, then you'll have to demonize the, the private sector. So I think like if you don't idolize, you, you tend not to demonize. But Calvin said the hardest 
factory of idols. So that's more challenging than it sounds. And I was thinking too, like we, everything seems so apocalyptic, right? Like everybody, mm. the, the election is such in such apocalyptic terms. You know, it takes me back to the fifth century. I say like, you know, oh, back in my day in the fifth century. But, you know, after the goth invasion of Rome, like, I guess it's like 410, you had like two Christian response. You had a lot of pagans saying, well, this is because we turn from the pagan gods, right? And you had kind of two Christian responses that were prominent. You had like people like St. Jerome that thought, well, Rome fell. The end is near. I'm going to go in Palestine. He also had some personal issues why I wanted to get to Rome. But yeah, I'm going to go and just translate, you know, Hebrew texts and, you know, wait, because then when Jesus comes, I'll be at the front row seat. And you had people like Silvanius, who's a Gaelic priest, I think, who his, he wrote some stuff that to the effect that like, well, the pagans are partially right. It's that we aren't faithful enough to God. And that's why God, it's not that we should switch God back to the pagan gods. It's that Christians have been so lax in their faith that this, that God's judgment was the the, the goths coming in. And Augustine really thought neither of those was, was the right answer. He thought that History is a, an ambiguous pilgrimage. And the, he says th- this in the city of God. In this unfriendly world, in evil days like these, the church through the lowliness she now endures is winning the sublime station she is to have in heaven. Meanwhile, the sting of fears and ache of tears, the vexations, toll, and arduous temptations teach her to rejoice only in the healthy joy of hope. With so many sin- sin- sinners mingled with all the saints, all caught in the single fishing net the gospel mentions. This life on earth is like a sea in which good and bad fishes caught in a net swim about indistinguishably until the net is beached and the bad ones are separated from the good. Only then does God so reign in the good as in his temple that he may be all in all. So it fails out that in this world, in evil days like these, the church walks onward like a wayfarer stricken by the world's hostility, but comforted by the mercy of God. Mm. Nor, nor does this state of affairs date only from the days of Christ and his apostles' presence on earth. It was never any different from the days where the first just man, Abel, was slain by his ungodly brother. So it shall be until this world is no more. It's uh, sobering and not the most uh, flowery, optimistic. It's not a morning in America around Reagan pack. <laughs> <laughs> but there is something that when you have modest expectations, you know, like, and Augustine was somebody that, you know, he thought that Christians should participate in civic life and seek the shalom of the city but you have to realize the city's babylon and uh and it's always the good that you can accomplish is always you know temporal and a fleeting good and peace Mm. Don't punish me with brutality Talk to me so you can see Conclusion, we this wonderful article that somebody you, you found from the Washington Post, which I think ties well into it's it's been a big week for Mockingbird. A new issue of the magazine has come out, right, David? Yes, it new issue of the mag mental health as as it should be arriving and if it hasn't arrived and if you've pre-ordered it, then you might want to check with us next week. But uh yeah, the magazine shipped this week and we've been super happy with that response so far. And uh Scott, if I mean I was blown away by the uh special podcast you put together uh, about it and especially listening to Carol and listening to um, Brian and Debbie solemn speak about their own uh, journey as it were uh, was really kind of one of the highlights of my week. Um, but 
this was in, in resp- <clears throat> immediately when it went out, uh, a number of people sent this uh, article to me from the Washington Post, and partly because Charlotte Donlan, who wrote it, has written for Mockingbird before, and it sounds like she's very much a friend of some friends. Um, it's got a, uh, <laughs> I, I, I assume she didn't give it this title, but it's, my pastor told me it was a sin not to feel joy. Here's what happens when churches ignore mental illness. And it is a, uh, despite the slightly hectoring title, it is a really wonderful article about um, that where Charlotte sort of lays bare her own struggles with bipolar disorder and, or uh, I think it's uh, her main um, manic depressive, man, her manic episodes. And uh, just how her experience of the church has been, was really disappointing in that people, when she would have a manic episode and she didn't want to, she talks about trying to meet with her pastor and her pastor just trying to pray for her and really not following up, not really knowing what to do. And um, she also talks about a, a sermon about joy that she was subjected to in which um, no one kind of, uh, there, there was no mention of mental illness. He, uh, he, she, 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 she paraphrases the sermon said, the pastor said that if you aren't experiencing joy, you should examine your life and repent of any sin that might be blocking it. And um, of the thousand people that heard that sermon, approximately 200 of those could experience some form of mental illness this year. So 200% of people may feel shame and guilt because of it. She talks about her own daughter, her struggles with anxiety and depression. And it's basically, it, it's really a sort of a heartfelt plea to the church to um, take mental illness seriously, not sweep it under the carpet, and to not talk about um joy apart as, as sort of a, uh, in, in, in terms of willpower and not, not, to, not sweep it under the carpet or pre- presume that people can just sort of summon this kind of, uh, attitude on their own strength. And, uh, you know, she, she, they, she mentioned some research about how I think something like 38% of pastors in the United States strongly agree that they feel equipped to identify a person dealing with acute mental illness. That's only 38%. And 49% of pastors rarely or never speak to their church in sermons or large group messages about acute mental illness. Now, that's probably actually, that's more encouraging than I thought it would be. I thought that number would be different. But um, the, uh, you know, uh, if, if this is true, then I'm, I'm even more grateful for the mental health issue because certainly we talk a lot about mental illness in there. And just that I, what she says is just even talking about it at all to surface it in any respect, 50% of what could be helpful. In fact, she quotes Amy Simpson, who recently wrote a book called Troubled Minds, Mental Illness and the Church's Mission. Sounds like a great book, saying that uh, talking about mental illness is a great place to start and might accomplish 50% of what people need from the church. For people isolated by stigma and fear, it's powerful to hear an acknowledgement that this kind of suffering exists, that it doesn't mean God has abandoned them, and that people in the church might be willing to walk with through it with them. And, you know, I, I have to say, if I, I hope that the we can add our little, you know, teardrop or raindrop to the ocean with that mental health issue, because I think it really does acknowledge and address and talk about um, head on the real struggles that many of us deal with in terms of uh, mental or mental health. So that's where it left me. What do you guys think? You know how when you get um, a fortune cookie at a Chinese restaurant, the thing you're supposed to do is say in bed afterwards? <laughs> I just, I, I love that. Kid. I yeah, love that. I know. I, I bet you do. Um, I, uh, I really, um, I wish that like there was a game where preachers would just say like, 
uh, this is God, like when they preach now. Like, I, I, I'm just, it's so sad to me that someone would stand up and preach to a thousand people that there's sin that's blocking them from joy. I mean, I honestly, it hits the same thing in me that like there are people who stand up and say like, well, you know, if you're not doing this version of social justice, then like, then you don't matter or you're not Christian or, I mean, it's just, the, it's, just, it's the same thing, right? Um, yeah, yeah. I just wish people would talk about God more from the pulpit. <laughs> I think that's, that's probably, so radical. that's probably the first thing. I took a class on, this is going to be such a sad story. So I apologize in advance. And it's funny in some ways and sad others but i took a class it's the only class i got kicked out of in seminary on um the only the only class the only one um i almost got kicked out of medieval theology but i didn't um (laughs) but it was all thomas aquinas how was i supposed to hang but anyway um it was a class on they had like a, a yale psychologist and a Yale theology professor. And um, and I had a miscarriage uh, early in the semester and really kind of fell apart for a lot of different reasons. <laughs> and um, and I got kicked out of the class. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I don't think the church is good at this. I, I really don't. I, I don't think the church uh, is training people in this. And I and I think we get out in the pews. And I think it's, it is a lot easier to say, we're just going to pray you through this because... We really don't know what to do with you. And um, uh, huh. as, con- as convenient, I know, Goodness. right? It's a heavy story. Scott, you're going to but- have to add like a, the sound of a car crash in the background <laughs> after she says that. I mean, it's, you know, it's like, uh, yeah, I, I, I believe that, you know, however inconvenient it may be for us to, to take mental illness seriously, it's certainly a calling because it is certainly what people are dealing with in the pews in a profound way. When, you know, when you start seminary, your first summer uh, in the Episcopal Church, and I think a lot of denominations do this, you have to do what's called CPE, clinical pastoral education. So you spend a summer in a hospital as a chaplain. You kind of get thrown into the deep end of the pool. And I fought really hard with the diocese to let me be at a psychiatric hospital as a chaplain. And the, the, the things I learned in 12 weeks there have been more helpful to me in the ministry than, than really anything else. Mm. There's this passage in the beginning of Frank Lake's clinical theology. It's in the introduction. He says, so far as our own subjective feelings are concerned, any interdirected questioning of our basic human nature may produce the same dismal answer as before. The cupboard is bare. While we regard our humanity as a container, which ought to have something good in it when we look inside, we miss the whole point of the paradox. We are not meant to be self-contained, but channels of the life and energies of God himself. From this point of view, our wisdom is to let the bottom be knocked out of our humanity, which will ruin it as a container at the same time as it turns it into a satisfactory channel. Mm. And I think that maybe some of our inability to talk about these things with any degree of grace or candor is because we we are preaching a sort of container message instead of mm. a channel message. Maybe maybe by with God's grace in ways that aren't too obliterating to us, but yet uh, be open to having the bottom knocked out because that's when grace seems to shine. And bleed through. So I was walking out of a service recently where someone had preached what I would I consider to be a very beautiful sermon, but it was also very much a, what you might call a very mockingbird sermon, a very kind of focus on the low anthropology and on the saving work of Christ, and uh, and not a lot outside of that. And um, I overheard someone just complaining that it was where was the joy? 
where was the joy? Where was the, uh, it seemed too dark and too individualistic and not enough talk about sort of hope and the kingdom of God and all these things that are, there's some legitimate gripes because I did think, I remember do thinking this guy probably didn't get enough sleep last night when, when I listened to the, uh, preacher that his tone did seem a little grumpy. But I also thought um, in light of all these mental health statistics that we read, I mean, if, if, if when you go dark, if someone is suicidal or is struggling with something way beyond their ability to deal with it by themselves, I mean, they would feel addressed by that. They would have felt addressed by that sermon. And I know that because I, I know that because I know other people who were there that did feel addressed and were in precisely that situation. And they do need to feel addressed but with a message that takes into account the uh, the real darkness that we live in and it often embodies the, those containers that, that uh, Scott's talking about and the light that shines in it, of course. You heard it first here. Mockingbird is an adjective. <laughs> yeah, I hate it when people do that. I'm sorry. I repent. <laughs> Forgive me. I like it. Gang, thanks so much again. Another weekend and so does this podcast. Thank you, Scott. Thanks, Scott. I will talk to you all next week. In bed. Thanks for listening to The Mockingcast. As always, you can find any of the content we referenced during the episode on our website, ember.com. If you like what you heard, please drop by iTunes, give us a rating, maybe even write a review, preferably an overwhelmingly positive one. The podcast is produced by yours truly, Scott Jones, ably assisted by my production assistant, David Peterson. We exist because of the enthusiasm, generosity, and support of you, our listeners. And for that, we are eternally grateful. Thanks for listening and have a great week.